Hello, everybody, and welcome to ABL Down on the Farm, Episode 5. Uh, excited to have you all here tonight uh, and being joined by a special guest, Dave, owner of the ABL Oakland Athletics. Uh, and we'll have him on in just a second. Uh, ABL uh, Down on the Farm is, of course, a prospecting uh, show dedicated to all things prospects, uh, but particularly those in the ABL, a 30-team dynasty league with a beautiful 20 a minor league roster for 600 glorious prospects that we can talk about and debate. Uh, and I am joined, like I said, about uh, one of my league uh, co-owners or owners, uh, Dave. And I'm going to bring him in now to talk about prospecting, all his dynasty exploits, uh, and uh, what it's like to be the owner of the Oakland A's uh, and soon to be the Las Vegas A's, I think. So uh, we'll bring in uh, we'll bring in Dave. Hi, Hi, Dave. How you doing? Hey, glad to be here. I have not thought at all about being renamed to the Las Vegas A's, but that that's fun to think about for the future. Yeah, I know. You're going to be like in a whole new city and, you know, get all these questions about why you moved the team and, uh, you know, but on the Vegas Strip, you know, think about all the new concessions and like, you know, add-ons you can have at the stadium. So that'll be good. Yeah, we have five sports books right in the stadium. That's that, right. That'll go well. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen when the young players get onto the Vegas Strip, you know, and uh, end up in like nightclubs and whatnot. But uh, we'll see how it pans out for you. Um, so, listen, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, great to have you on. And, um, you know, I was really interested to have you join the show because you've uh, got a very kind of deep dynasty background uh, that I think is broader and deeper than a lot of the guys in the league, even for the ABL owners. So, I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe you could explain kind of how many dynasty leagues you're in, how deep they are, and kind of, um, you know, how far you're stretched in terms of evaluating all these prospects. Yeah, so uh, 2011, the Cardinals just won the World Series. Um, I was in high school at the time, 16 years old. Uh, and I was I was doing some fancy leagues. I was really addicted to MLB The Show, um, played it all the time. Uh, I saw I was on Reddit at the time. I was actually a moderator of the Cardinals subreddit way oh, back then. Um, if you go there now, they have like a CSS design on it still. And like the framework was like put in place by me. I just learned CSS just to like ramp up the website just because it was like a simple, you know, white page mm -hmm. way back when. But uh, some guy who I'm now great friends with because uh, it's been, uh, what, 12 years since then, posted on Reddit that he's like, hey, I want to try a 30-team dynasty league. And it was not something I'd ever heard about at the time. Um, and he's like, be 18 years old or older to join. So I lied. Uh, I, I just wanted in. Um, it wasn't for a ton of money. It was only like a few hundred bucks if you championed it. But uh, right. But I joined, um, and I've been in that since. And ever since I joined that league, I haven't really been able to go back to uh, 12 teamers or even like 15 teamers consistently. My my sense of value is just way too skewed now towards 30 team leagues. I I look at like a 12 team waiver wire, and every single player on it looks interesting to me. So, <laughs> so it's weird, but. Um, yeah, so I'm, I've been in that league uh, just as the St. Louis Cardinals, which is um, the my hometown team, uh, born and raised in St. Louis. Uh, and then 
I also, a few years ago, at the same time I joined ABL, I, I was really looking to try specifically a um, salary and contract league mm-hmm. because over in my main, which I'll call uh, Reddit Dynasty, um, we had done a lot of talk like, hey, we've been doing the same rule set, which is just like a standard keeper league with some uh, intricacies with promoting prospects. Um and graduating them but we didn't have a lot of way to make things equitable uh if if you have 10 players that you're keeping uh every year and there's no limitation on it um squads can just get stacked out of control for a long time um we've had guys in that league that have never been bad just partially because they're just good owners um but also they're allowed to kind of exploit the rule set that we have, which is fine. Every, every rule set can be exploited in some way. But so I went hunting for how do I set up a salary and contract league for a 30 team league? Um, I found Duke's post. I joined. Um, I basically took the parts I liked out of the ABL constitution, which is, I, I really do enjoy the ABL's rule set, but I, I mixed and mashed those two uh, with our, that rule set with RD and made uh, franchise legends, um, which I currently commish. Um, and we've had a couple owners from ABL in that league over the years, but um, I think the only one still there is, uh, is Jeff Cardinals. Um, uh-huh. He's the Cardinals and franchise legends as well. So of course he is. Yep. <laughs> so that's kind of my, it's kind of my background. Uh, 12 years been doing this. Um, and then a few years as commissioned. Yeah. So the commission is are you, first salary. Are you just, are you just the commission in that league or are you also an owner in that league? Oh, I'm the, I'm the Chicago White Sox in that league. Got so it. I'm the Cardinals in RD, the White Sox in FL, and then the athletics in ABL. Right. Right. All right. So we'll, we'll get in a little bit later in the show, uh, you know, how you manage prospecting across all those leagues. And I'm interested to hear your approach in, in holding prospects over such large and deep dynasty leagues, because not a lot of people have to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm for example, I'm in a lot of dynasty leagues, but I'm only in one thirty teamer. You know, I've got like a, a 16, two 16 league team, the 20 and the 30. Um, so the, the, you know, there's a lot of variation and certainly going to your point about skewing value stuff that happens in ABL is very different than what happens in my 16 team league. Right. And, you know, the trades that you make are, are entirely different. The number of prospects who are available, the type of prospects you might roster in ABL, you would never roster in one of these other leagues because it's just not deep enough to roster those guys. Um, and you kind of have to like discipline yourself not to start adding those guys because <laughs> you're like, you fall in love with them in ABL and, you know, they really aren't going to, have any value for a long, long time in those 16 team leagues. So I'm interested to hear how you do it and we'll get into that. But before we do, I'm just curious to hear how you've evolved in your prospecting approach since you started doing it in 2011 or roughly around then and kind of, you know, what was the learning curve like for you and, you know, where are you now in terms of like, you know, what you utilize generally speaking and how you like approach prospects. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, when I first started out, even back in like 2011, 2012, um, MLB.com would put out a top 100. Uh, Baseball America would 
Baseball America would put out a paywall top 100 fan graphs, I think was like early stages. Then baseball prospectus would put out their book. So you kind of, it was, it was a little less accessible than it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, People did, there were like independent creators still then that were putting out content uh, designed for deeper minor league rosters, but it's it's gotten a lot better since then. Um, And I've used a lot less of it. Uh, I think, the vast majority of content available uh, in the in the public domain for looking up prospect value is is just completely worthless. Um, I, I don't I don't spend hardly any time at all um, reading anything unless it's specifically from sources that I trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think uh, so like <laughs> I know the league I think does not like Eric Cross very well. Right. I'm in total agreement with that. I thought Eric Cross, um, in terms of like prospect evaluation, was no better than anyone from ABL. Not necessarily that he was bad, but no one from ABLs necessarily would be bad at it either. Um, if it's your full time job, you write something. But right, right, right. I mean, look, I mean, I don't want to bash Eric, I suppose, individually on the, on the podcast, but I think the point generally is that there are a lot of talking heads in the industry. Yeah. Right. And it's not clear to me they have any like, you know, credentials to be like talking about prospects. They, they come up with lists, they rank them, they debate them on Twitter, but there's a lot of noise. And we talked about this on the last episode with Josh about like, you know, kind of like calling through the noise to get to the sources you trust. Right. Um, and so how did you come to arrive on whatever sources it is that you kind of trust today? Anyone that's talking to scouts or is a scout. Um, so Baseball America, I, I kind of just implicitly trust that even if their evaluations, I don't necessarily agree with just like in terms of ranking one guy over another, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're, they're connected in to uh, the network. Um, the name of the game right now is not, it's not Moneyball anymore. You're not trying to find, you know, players that are underrated uh, just with their skill set, you're trying to find the next development uh, discovery. You're you're trying to find players that have unlocked something, um, and their value is suddenly skyrocketing, and you have to just jump on that, or you have to have a source that you trust that is now relaying to you, "Hey, scouts are watching this guy." He's throwing harder. Um, he has changed his approach in some way. Um, he's added a ton of power or bat speed to his swing. Um, mm-hmm. Something's different, and and that's what I'm looking for, basically. Yep. No, I totally understand that. I mean, you know, that's why I call it prospecting. You're looking for gold, right? And that's the gold. Like when you start digging and you find out somebody is chirping about a prospect and specifically what that prospect is doing that has evolved, right, or, or, or developed in some way that wasn't there before, and therefore that prospect is not on somebody's list, right, that's when you feel really good, right? I mean, that's when you add a player and you're like, well, you know what, and, and talk to me in a month and a half. Like, because that by that point, the industry will integrate the information on the player, and then it'll become very valuable, either to trade or to hold, right? But, you know, if you get them early, the acquisition cost is next to nothing, right? Right, yeah. yeah. And, and I have a lot of thoughts about that, but but, no, but please, please share. Please, no, no, proceed. We'll get to it later. Uh, that's all right. Uh, so 
Well, that's great. So you you landed on Baseball America, and I've been very vocal about Baseball America being one of my favorite sources, and I trust them too, precisely for the same reason you articulated, which is that they're plugged into scouting and they talk to people and they and they themselves look at players live, right? In addition to video, um, are there any sources that you kind of initially relied on that you've kind of discarded over the years? Uh, Fangraphs, I just I just don't really. Um... The way Longenhagen does it now is bizarre to me, uh, just in terms of, at, at the very minimum, if, if you're trying to appeal to the largest audience possible, it should be the fantasy audience. Um, I, I guess Longenhagen is trying to do something in the way where the list should be updated based off the timeline of the draft instead of at the season, but... <laughs> I, I just like fundamentally disagree with how he approaches um, sharing prospect information with the world. Um, and then also just because of how long it takes him to put out content, I don't necessarily trust that what he's putting out is up to date anymore. <laughs> uh, the amount of time he spends working on this and the, and what he puts out is a lot of content and it, for like some of the very deep players, it's more information than you'll get from almost any other source. But for the guys that matter in a league like ABL, which is almost as deep as it gets, you know, 600 minors guys rostered, um, yep. <laughs> past the top 20 is usually not going to matter too much. And at, at like at that point, um, who needs to know about this besides like actual uh, MLB GMs? <laughs> Right, right, right. What, what I find interesting about fan graphs is that they are very conservative about scouting grades, right? I mean, if you go on the, like, the, the you know, the 80 scale, right, so many of their prospects, they rank at, like, you know, 40 or 45, like, all, you know, their overall grade, right? Or they just give very low scores for varying, you know, uh, skill sets, power, speed, hit, you know, hit tool, whatever it is. And I just find it very difficult to kind of figure out what they're doing, like how they're arriving on that, because they those grades will wildly deviate from Baseball America, you know. Um, and sometimes the content of the write-up doesn't match what they're grading the, the player at, right? Um, so I just, if I can't understand what they're doing, I tend to discount it. If you can't explain it to me and like articulate it in a way that is digestible, like, or, or just reveal it, like <laughs> whatever you're doing. I just don't, I tend not to trust it. So I, I only use fan graphs now for stats. You know, there's, there's certain things they report, certain ways they report stats that are useful to me, um, you know, and um, both at the minor league level and at the major league level for redraft leagues or keeper leagues. But I, I too have kind of like gone away from that. Um, anything else you've like gravitated towards over the years? Uh, yeah, I, I think just, I mean, like I've said, I've really cut down the amount of sources that I trust. Um, but also I've just started trusting my own evaluation of what matters for player development. Um, or, I'm sorry, not player development, player evaluation and just like their current skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, you can kind of look at trends over the years and, you know, export some fan graphs tables uh, over large ranges and see 
you know, just patterns of guys that showed these stats and that, cause that's all we have to go off of unless we're at games. Mm -hmm. uh, we're just going off stats. Um, so we really just have the option to look at all these stats and say, what are the best indicators that we have? And there's a lot of good content publicly about what are some of the best indicators for carrying success from the minors to the major leagues um, or showing that a guy is about to unlock another level. Uh, maybe they're just unlucky. Yep. Stuff like that. Um, that you can really, a lot of it is just trusting your own eyes. Um, at the beginning, I didn't really have any disposition to saying like, oh, I know more than a scout. And I still wouldn't say I know more than a scout, but I would say that um, I've done so much study on it that I can near the level of a scout, use the stat line to find good indicators of what a good player looks like. Right. How much do you use? Um, Cause I, I've, I've had a similar kind of evolution, if you will, where I've gotten to the point where I feel like I can independently judge these players and also judge them in terms of what kind of fantasy players they are going to be. Right. Which is a, which is a slightly different analysis than the scouts may be engaged in. Right. Um, so that there's some stat lines that I'm more interested in, some skill sets that I'm more interested in for purposes of fantasy, including format of the league I'm in and scouting the players for that I'm focused on. Um, but what are some of the indicators, and I'm happy to talk about the ones that I use, that you've kind of gravitated to over the years? Uh, well, the best one it, for pitchers is, is just good old K minus walk. Um, Yep. <laughs> I mean, even even when you look at the best models available, they're all trying to beat K minus walk. And I think even like the hot model right now is, you know, stuff plus model. Yep. Um, and even that only beats K minus walk by like a little bit. It, it like stabilizes quicker and it does better results over long periods of time. But like K minus walk, just being publicly available. I think stuff plus is only, it only goes down to triple a. Cause that's as far as savant goes down. Like they don't have the, the setups at lower levels. I believe that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so like at double a, which is very important, especially right now. Cause they have different balls down there right now. Yeah. And different um, grips in some way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just being able to find the one stat right there, which is, just incredible for evaluating pitchers and, and predicting their performance. Um, yeah. It, it also, it doesn't really, it doesn't rely on anything other than just the math, right. To, in order to like rel be reliable to you, right. It, it's not contingent on what ballpark the player is playing in, whether there are enough cameras, whether there's enough, you know, site of, you know, pitch location or whatever it is shape, you know, whereas, the stuff plus that they're doing now, which is incredibly sophisticated and, and very interesting to me. Uh, and not that I understand really any of it, it's just the results that I can read, but K minus walk. Yeah. <laughs> like I get that. <laughs> there it is, you know? Yeah. Hitters are a little more complicated. I'm basically <laughs> trying. And, and I think other people, uh, I've, I've found some sites that don't update constantly, but they've provided some formula to predicting out um, 90th percentile exit velocity, mm -hmm. which I think is one of the best indicators just purely from like a hitting perspective of this guy is a guy. Um, right. 
hitting is such a there's so many ways to hide how poor you are at hitting and good results doing just a ton of different things at the minor league level minor league defenders aren't as good so a ground ball approach can work if you're just smashing you know worm burners um the air at like triple a it all those triple a stadiums in the pacific coast league yep. are at like crazy elevation so fly ball hitters there just get their stats padded and and like pitching stats there just get destroyed um so there's a lot of kind of just junk you have to filter out um i i don't have a perfect formula for figuring out that 90th percentile exit velocity because i wish you know the day that savant is in every minor league stadium and that data is publicly available um i think the fantasy community is just going to take off with prospecting yeah no that's a good point i mean and it dovetails with what we were talking about just a second ago the just the lack of consistency in terms of where the data is available um, and figuring out a way, as you pointed out, to also discount for environment, um, which is, you know, and even the minor league stadiums themselves are just wildly inconsistent. Whereas at least at the major league level, while there are some eccentricities about various parks in the league, there's some form of consistency about the parks even, right? And, you know, um, in terms of the outfield depth, again, some, you know, some variations, sure, you know, but it's much more stable. There are a lot more cameras. There's a lot more data for the you know, major league level. The minor leagues, you just know what, what the hell you're going to get, right? And never mind the DSL, which is like an entirely like a deeper pool and, and uncharted waters in many ways for this analytics stuff that's coming out now. Um, you know, one of the things, interesting things for me, and it, it, the data is just not available yet at the prospect level, is it, it, the way I would like it to be is... An analysis that, analysis that Baseball HQ does on launch angle and exit velocity, and then the consistency of those two things and the stickiness of that. And they do that at the major league level. So they'll rate players in terms of 90th percentile for each. Um, and they have a whole grading system for players. And you see that that really tends to be sticky year over year. Um, and when you see a change, that suggests a change in approach, right? Or unlocking another tool that they're reaching their raw power when the exit velocity goes up. And for them every year, they have a leading indicator for players that are about to break out. And at the end of the season, if you look at that list, it's pretty good, right? Uh, but that data is just not available at the minor league levels in the same way. And I think you're right when, it, when that starts to happen and eventually it will. Um, you know, I think it is going to unlock a whole new Pandora's box for, you know, fantasy owners to like really, you know, delve into and be excited about. Um, well, that's really interesting. Let, let's, let's jump into some of the uh, topics for tonight's show. Um, you know, I, I do want to talk to you about managing all these prospects in your various dynasty leagues and how you possibly managed to approach that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit also about um, your minor league roster in ABL because uh, you have some, an interesting blend to me of both stars, uh, really highly rated prospects, but also some diamonds in the rough, or at least guys that I really like. Um, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts about how you kind of collated this group of players together. Um, and then, um, you know, I always like to talk about uh, crushes and fades and, um, you know, players you're high on, players you're kind of out on um, and why. Uh, and certainly any questions along the way that you have that you want to talk about, feel free to, you know, jump in with those too. Um, 
but you know, let's let's talk about you know these three massive dynasty league teams that you have, right? And is it is it twenty roster spots for minor leagues in each one of them? Uh, in FL, uh, so I did. Well, let me preface this. In RD, we do uh, fifteen minor leaguers okay. uh, per okay. team, so uh, a little bit smaller, one hundred fifty less uh, from a league wide perspective. Um, I did when I created FL. I used ABL's twenty model, um, so it's RD's fifteen, and then FL and ABL are twenty and twenty. Um, okay, so that's still fifty five yeah. uh, prospects you have to like you know get on your board for those three. Days. Yeah, and and for the most part, I don't really have hardly any overlap between them, just because of different ways that each league takes towards acquiring prospects. Okay, so th- that choice not to have the overlap, um, and it sounds like it is a little bit of a choice. It's premised more on the format itself rather than, say, the diversification of investment you know, philosophy that some, some owners have. Yeah, and this is something I, I guess I probably have a stronger opinion about it than, than most owners. Um, I would say that the method that ABL allows us to acquire prospects, and by that I mean I can acquire any prospect in the MLB auction because it's before the minor league a draft, and then I can also just acquire any prospect with FAB and they get full benefits to that. Um, we, don't, we don't have that in FL or RD. Um, and so I've been used to those for so long that being exposed to this just makes me think, oh, well, the, the ABL minor league draft past a certain point, I would say like even like past pick 30 in the minor league draft is, is almost worthless to me um, from a minor league value perspective. And not to say that, having those picks is invaluable because um, you can trade them. Uh, right. <laughs> their teams do do like those picks, but to me, um, it's just like hardly worth it at all because, you know, I've already brought this up. This is the age of player development. Information changes a player's value rapidly. Um, like if, if we did the draft now, I would not have taken Jace Young where I did. But that, that was just, I had a first round pick and he was the guy that, you know, seemed the best at the time. Right. Um, but, and it's been a month and a half since then. And now the, the whole layout has just changed immediately. Well, uh, you, know, it, you know, the other side of that coin, right, is that it could be an overreaction to a small sample size. Right. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things we suffer from in the fantasy community is the deluge of information. Right. Um, And if you believe that prospecting is a long game. Right. And that prospect development is not linear. um, You know, there's something to be said for like just maybe getting a couple months data (laughs) before freaking out, Um, you know, and uh, we've all seen plenty of prospects that struggle at one level or for a whole year and then unlock something the next. And, you know, a guy I got out on, I got, was in on him very early was Jackson Churio. And he had a mediocre 
DSL campaign, like like cut bait with them, and I've forever regretted it. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, that, that's painful. Yeah, I mean, and now he's struggling again at Double A ball, so maybe I'll be able to pick him up again at some point. But like, you know, the cost has gone up, right? Um, so I hear you about like Chase Young. I just um, I always find it amusing when owners are talking about somebody being a buster, like, geez, you went too high or this. It's been a month. And most of these kids are like 19 or 20 years old or younger, right? I mean, we'll see. I mean, you know, Jared Kellenick was a bust before this year. He seems to be all right, you know. Um, but I take your point. And look, I think the acquisition or the ability to acquire uh, minor league talent in ABL, um, you know, certainly – benefits owners who are very well steeped in prospecting right because you know maybe a fourth round pick isn't that valuable or even a third round pick is not that valuable in your head but part of that may be correct me if you think i'm wrong that you feel like you can replicate that off the wire that, that i mean that's exactly it i feel like especially once you get past the second round because i feel like first round is is pretty much a mirror because everyone can just acquire pop-up prospects um on the on the wire or even buy them in the major league auction and then once it gets to the actual minor league draft it's going to be more or less you know not the exact same order but it's going to mirror the first round of the real life major league draft right um right so so it's just like like for the most part once you get past the first round of the real life major league draft the you know the hit rates really start to fall off um and that's kind of how i feel about the first round of the abl draft and you may as well just you know with with the ability to acquire guys on the wire you can just grab that fifth round guy that is randomly hitting and he didn't go in the in the minor league draft and so he's just there and i can get him for one fab i have 50 of of fab so yep the, the risk there is almost nothing and the reward is that you may have a future major leaguer at an supremely discounted cost right right and you know uh it, they're you know fungible too right you can just like drop and pick them up throughout the course of the season so the, you know the the lost opportunity cost isn't that great either right whereas you you know you have a third round pick in the draft, you feel like you, you know, you got to like hit on that. You got to do something with it. Right. And, um, maybe you should trade it. Right. And, you know, move up in a subsequent year, get some, you know, might major league player for it. I mean, I certainly am very open to trading my picks outside of like a top 15 pick. Um, because a, like, I feel like I can do in the fourth or fifth round, what I can do in the third round. Because, because to me, the drop off after like the top 30 goes from above average players to average players pretty quickly. Right. I would, I would say that happens after like the top 10. It could. Yeah. It could. I mean, I, I think that this probably, it depends on the class year too. I mean, I think, for example, the, this year's draft um, was very deep because we had two DSL classes in it, two J2 classes, and, you know, the first year player draft as well. That'll get thinned out a little bit next year. Uh, although, the next draft class is supposed to be very, very good. Um, but, you know, you could have 55 great players going, you know, in the top, up to 20, 25 in that draft last year. Uh, but after that, certainly you're talking about 50 great players, right? And, 
you know, would I rather take, and I, and I would, because this is like what I do, I would rather take the J2 player in round five who might be a 60 grade player. It's high risk, but it's a fourth round, fifth round pick, right? I mean, like, you know, what do I care? And I'd rather trade those other, other picks. I mean, I, it sounds like you have a similar philosophy, but, you know, how, how do you view like the J15s and, and, and you know, those DSL prospects? Unless I read about them, um, like when Jason Dominguez was first, you know, coming up, he was he was hyped out of control. And it, but it, it was so weird because it felt like every actual industry source I read was just like, yeah, he's probably like a top 40 guy right now, which is great for for a J2 guy. Um, but no one was, you know, calling him the next you know, Babe Ruth or anything in the industry sources. Right. Um, you know, part of it was Yankee stuff, but as far as like J2s in general go, unless the industry is really in on a guy, and Jackson Churio was a guy they were really in on, Ellie they were really in on, um, Samuel Basalo, who's who you mentioned earlier, it felt like they were really in on and uh, Ethan Salas is, I I would I would not be shocked if Ethan Salas was a number one prospect in the future. Um, I would not be shocked either. I the mean, amount uh, of I actually watched him in uh, I was down in Arizona in spring oh, training. Tell me about that. Uh, it was the first game that Ethan Salas went in. We were just randomly at the game. Um, I, I was with uh, friends from RD, which is my main. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we were there for the World Baseball Classic, so we caught some spring training games while we were there. By the way, the we were at the Mexico-USA game in box seats, and um, there's been, like, some articles since then about how impactful the Mexico-USA game was for baseball in Mexico. And I really have to back that up because the atmosphere at that game was unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. In what um, sense? What, what was going on? It was so for one, it was crowded beyond belief. Um, the the line just again, the stadium, we got there, I think, two hours early, and the line stretched like four blocks out of the stadium to just again. Um, once you got in, the amount of just like Mexico, Mexico chants that were going on, what it was electric just listening to it. Um, and we got to our box seats, Mexican flags everywhere, some USA flags. The The USA crowd was notably less invested in this game than the Mexico crowd was. And then when Joey Manessis um, hit that home run the first inning, the stadium just exploded. And it was like it, a rock concert. Yeah, that, that was great. Anyway. Not, that, the question, though, is were you wearing USA paraphernalia? I was in a um, just I was just in a standard Cardinals jersey. Um, I since then I have bought a Lars Newbar Cardinals jersey, which is now my go-to. Um, if you can't tell by my ABL squad, I, I love Lars Newbar. Um, What's that? But, uh, but at the time I was just in a in Cardinals gear. I had a Team USA hat, but I didn't have a USA flag or anything like that. All right. Well, you don't, you know, you, you want to keep, uh, be respectful when you're in somebody else's country too. So that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it was Phoenix, 
but <laughs> but, but you were in somebody else's country in the stadium <laughs> yeah yeah basically. It, it was basically um phoenix mexico at the time yeah, yeah anyway yeah. though we were down in arizona we were at that random padre spring training game we knew of ethan salas uh because when you're in these 30 team leagues you do the information passes down to you that a 16 year old just signed for five million dollars um so we knew the name but then they announced on the scoreboard uh he wasn't even in the because they hand out roster sheets for spring training because it it goes through like the 80 guys that might appear in this game and salas wasn't on it and we're like there's no way that is ethan salas in this game right now he is 16 years old and catching i don't remember it might have been even like you darvish pitching at the time but there's no way he is in there. And yep, that was that was the first game that he appeared. And then like the reports after the game were just, you know, scouts across the industry were stunned how mature this guy looked on the field. Like he looked like a major league player. Yeah, no, he's he's, he's a remarkable prospect because he is so young. And, you know, the Padres are being very aggressive with him. They're skipping, you know, all kinds of levels for this kid. Um, and it's going to be really fascinating. Uh, to see how he hits, you know, over time, because he's going to be by far the youngest player in every league, every level he's in, uh, and playing basically the toughest position of the sport. Because, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff you got to do as a catcher, right? Uh, and to develop on that side of the ball, too. Um, but in our in our ABL league, and Jeff, uh, Jeff you know, uh, Cardinal Jeff was able to get him in the draft, uh, and then it might end up being the steal of the draft. Um, because I think you're right. He will very soon have like Adley, like, you know, lore about him uh, and possibly he was even better. I mean, to be 16 years old and to be like already in low minors, it's phenomenal. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Jeff Cardinals, if you're listening to this, um, shoot me an offer uh, for, <laughs> with Ethan Salas in it. Uh, unless it's really crazy, I'll probably accept it. I, I I have a sense of Lars Newpar like Ethan Salas trade is coming. That's uh you know right to the heart. <laughs> Man, there's something about you know having the one guy that you're you're just like in love with, like a favorite player in a, in a he's your Whitney Houston player. Yeah, basically, <laughs> I, I love I love Lars Newpar. As soon as I can get my hands, because I don't think they were available and they may still not be available, but as soon as I can get a Team Japan. New Park jersey, I'm going to do it. All right, hey man, whatever floats your boat. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, as you know, I'm a Cardinals fan too, so I, I, I like Lars not as much as you do, but, <laughs> but I like Lars. I root for him, so uh, that's great. That's great. But you know, sometimes you got to trade like your love affairs to get the, you know, the young minor league prospects that you want. So you never know. Yeah, it would be tough for me to turn down New Bar for Salas. But yes, yeah, I'm brokering a trade right now. Say, like, yeah, I, I, I can get this done. <laughs> You know, we get Jeff on the show. We, you know, we will listen to this probably afterwards. But uh, I think I think I've like started like a you know a rumor. We, we gotta have like a trade rumor mail off uh, for the show as well. There's one. Salas from Newt Bar. You heard you heard it here first. All right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's talk about this. So you've got like these massive rosters, and you know we talked about how you're not really trying to intentionally diversify, right? But What's your approach in the leagues where you have a shorter bench or the leagues where it's more difficult to acquire a minor league talent, a more expensive, let's call it? Like, how is it really different from ABL to those other leagues? 
so I'll just speak from my main, which is RD. Um, the only way to get a player in your minor league roster in um, RD is to draft them. Uh, they have to be taken in the minor league draft. Otherwise, they literally just cannot go in a minor league spot. Um, and so there's no way to, like, get... There, there's also benefits to graduating a prospect there. Um, you get to keep them for free. They don't count against your 11-keeper um, cap uh, for two years after they graduate from the minor leagues. Um, so you can... You know, you can have your 11 major league keepers and then you might have six graduated prospects still in their first two years in the league. And that's kind of where the value in that league comes mm -hmm. from. Um, so because of there, there's additional restrictions versus ABL um, and there's additional benefits because you get them two years for, you know, there is no limit. I mean, here they only cost a buck or something, but there, there is no limit to, uh, the value you get from keeping them. Um, so with that in mind, I prioritize acquiring draft picks in that league way more than I do in ABL. Um, first round picks there in that league are like gold. Right. Um, I, the way that I exploit the rules in that league is um, that I will build as strong of a roster as I can during the regular season. I'll trade prospects to do it. And then when it comes time to cut, I'll just move strong players that, you know, I, I just want first round picks again, because those first round picks, I'll just keep the ones that really hit. And then I'll move the ones that are kind of like, Oh, this guy's good, but he's kind of like a top 50 guy. And then I'll just acquire those strong players I had to cut earlier again from, right. from teams that are struggling right well it sounds like the abl gives you a lot more latitude uh when it comes to prospects and you feel like a little now that you've kind of hit your stride in kind of evaluating prospects it might be a sweet spot for you right because you feel like you can kind of read between the lines between the sources that you trust and pick out the gems that other people have you know kind of picked up on yet uh, and now you can get them outside the draft in the abl yeah, like if I had the option in RD to just go on the waiver wire and just constantly scout it for uh, players in the minors that are starting to, it looks like they have changed something and they're starting to hit, um, I would be way more active in the waiver wire on that in, in RD. But right now in RD, the activity, the, the dynamic and change in roster comes primarily from, uh, trades over acquisitions because the waiver i mean it's a 30 team league the waiver wire is complete garbage um yeah i mean that's just how it is we, that's how we, it is ABL too at the major league level yeah although i will say abl's wire is i mean at the major league level so in rd we only have six bench spots so there are guys that like there are relievers that are good um there are like some bench players that might put up like nine or ten points a week uh, like on a on a decent one if they get a few starts, but in ABL, unless you want a backup catcher, uh, you're not getting anything. Nope. <laughs> um, unless you're the first one in on a guy that got called up. I got Mercado for some reason. Um, I just put in a dollar bid on him, and that is interesting that, that you, you felt you. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how that happened. I was kind of just like, uh, he he might play a couple games and then 
it got hot. Yeah. 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 Um, well, so the, you know, the upshot of that for everybody listening is that uh, you should be very wary of uh, people like Dave and me when we're, when we're trading away prospect picks because uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a free for all on the wire. Um, but you know, you use that to your advantage, right? Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit, having said all that about your roster in ABL and you know, you've got an interesting blend of players, and it kind of makes sense to me now, having heard how you approach prospecting this league, like the players that you have, because you do have some real stars. You've got Ellie De La Cruz, you've got, you know, Andrew Painter, um, you know, some real household names in that regard. And those aren't your only good players. I just named the two kind of like top echelon ones. Uh, but you also have an interesting mix of other players on your roster. You know, Christian Mania is a guy that I like and I've been following. Um, and you've got um, Sam Balalos, the catcher in uh, Baltimore, who's a young stud coming up the ranks. Um, and I'm kind of curious, you know, how you go about thinking about whether to pick some of these guys up that are lesser known, maybe on the wire, what you're looking for. Uh, I mean, maybe you can use one of those guys that I mentioned or somebody else as kind of a, you know, template for how your decision-making process works. Yeah, sure. So I would say a lot of it just comes down to um identifying what has changed and i've talked about that a lot but for hitters it's not hitters don't so much display change in a rapid way um if a hitter has made uh, a quality change um something in their profile has altered it's going to take a month or or even longer for that to really start showing up in games mm -hmm. um, I mean, for Ellie, it took like two weeks. He learned how to walk. Um, so, I mean, I don't necessarily buy that completely. Like, I don't just buy that, like, oh, Ellie can walk now. Um, but I do buy that he has altered his approach somewhat. And maybe he's not like a 30% K, 4% walk guy. Maybe he's a 28% K, 7% walk guy, which is a lot more playable. Sure. Um, but for pitching versus hitters, if a pitcher changes something and then they go into the next start and they use it and it works, that is instant. And um, that, that is instant feedback for you. Uh, Kyle Hurt, uh, I, I acquired at the same time as Mercado, and he was the guy I actually uh, prioritized over Mercado, which is why I was surprised I got Mercado. I, I wasn't sure how that happened, but um Kyle Hurt last year he's just a random Dodgers guy and and you know same with random Rays guys if if, you, if there's a random Dodgers guy that suddenly starts doing something I just grab him um <laughs> because there's good organizations to pull from right yeah, yeah. the um, Orioles too <laughs> yeah yeah the Orioles uh have Sigmidel um the the NASA guy who was on the Cardinals at one point um yeah leading their their player develop he's like the assistant gm or something there but um they're they're very heavily player development now that's kind of how i got clued in on uh kate povich too so um but yeah like kyle hurt uh has suddenly changed his uh range of outcomes he's just stopped walking people uh last year he walked like 37 guys in 31 innings at the higher levels and this year he has like a two walk per nine 
So it, it has been a radical change. He's still striking out guys at a crazy level. He's he's built like a starting pitcher. He's like 6'3", 220 or something, 230. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you about that, what you just said about height and weight. How much how much emphasis do you place on that? Because I, I have my own view, which I'm happy to share, but I'm interested in what you have to say about that. It's harder to succeed if you don't have the the right height for a starting pitcher. Extension does matter. Um, that's why they track it on Baseball Savant. It's not the most important factor. Um, I went on, I randomly saw that just people talking about spin rates for, um, I think it was Brian Bellows fastball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, you know, thought I should put in my opinion there. But um, like the most important factors you know, there's velocity, movement, tunneling profile. And then um, like extension is not one of those, but it's still up there. So I do look at height a little bit. It's not the first thing I look at, but it's something I'll consider because orgs do use it, um, especially ones that are not like at the top of the player development spectrum. They'll still look at the 5'11 guy and then they'll look at the 6'3 guy and if they're pretty even they'll just go with the 6'3 guy stays in the rotation the 5'11 guy goes in the bullpen yeah i look at it more from a durability standpoint and hedging my risks you know if i see a guy who's 5'10 5'11 is is trying to be a starting pitcher and he weighs you know 175 180 you know i'm concerned if he weighs 160 i'm really concerned Right. Because I just don't know how he's going to hold up over time. Doesn't mean he can't. Doesn't mean he can't. Right. But if, if I'm taking educated guesses on guys, like I will gravitate towards the taller, heavier pitchers uh, with some exceptions. Um, but guys that I was like kind of down on or less a consensus on were Jack Leiter and, you know, Meyer was another guy I uh, was down on because of his height. Um, you know, Myers obviously hurt. Is that necessarily a correlation? No, <laughs> but it's it's certainly a fact that uh, you know I put in my draft prep. It's one of the columns I have is height and weight. Yeah, I just i I have given up on um, estimating durability from pitching prospects. It's it's just to oh. me, it's just going to make me depressed. Um, <laughs> so I'll I'll just look at a pitcher, and if they haven't gotten hurt before i just say okay well no yeah, injury I'll, history but it, it will come i mean andrew painter it does not have a torn ucl it's it's not a torn ucl but it kind of is yeah um, i i'll put a lot of um i'll put a lot of weight on scouting reports in terms of the delivery and whether they have any pitches that are max effort and you know what kind of um arm angle they're taking um so i tried to read between the lines but it's very difficult to ballpark durability for these pitchers. It's all educated guesses. Um, and there's no science to it, the best I can tell anyway. Maybe the major league teams have a way to figure it out, but I don't think they do either. Yeah, I think the major league teams are really focusing on what because okay, so you're you're a Cardinals fan. There's um that he's kind of a fraud, but there's that the pain guy. They used to be on Twitter. You know who I'm talking about. Uh-huh. And he had like ideas about this is what pitchers that never got hurt did in their delivery. And they talked about the inverted W that or, that you would have, um, which an inverted W is just an M. I don't know why he ever. Anyway, he, he's kind of a fraud, but 
um, he was kind of the first person that I saw online that started talking about there are certain mechanics that pitchers do that I think this leads to injury. I don't think anything that he said was necessarily right, but I bet um, the next breakthrough for organizations is trying to figure it because I don't think anyone has figured it out. If they did, they would they would strike gold. Um, well, interesting. Yeah, interesting. I'm sorry to interject. But, you know, there was an article on Baseball America, and they've had a series of articles about how AI might affect scouting in terms of projecting, you know, durability and success uh, and repeatability, consistency, those kind of things. Um, and it, it is an interesting notion that these computers might be able to actually forecast in some way um, and you know, be so precise that we actually get some kind of metric. Uh, that they can generate that you know illustrates durability i don't know what that is but it, it is an interesting idea to me i mean we have the so i mean we have um i don't know which camera does it but um paired along with cameras like the edgertronic um there are some uh, development facilities i think driveline has one where they measure the torque that is that is on the structure of a pitcher during his motion right and, and they're trying to, you know, I, again, no one has really figured it out. They figured out things that are bad and it turns out throwing a really fast fastball is bad. Shocker. Um, right. Going max effort all the time is bad. Yeah. Yeah. That, that may have something to do with it too. <laughs> it is interesting. They learned that really throwing really hard fastballs is worse for your arm than throwing any amount of breaking balls, which is why I think we really have started to see, um, a lot more orgs are like, hey, stop throwing your fastball 70% of the time. Throw your slider 60% of the time and then have that be your primary pitch. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. forget establishing the fastball. Yeah, and you're, you are seeing that in all levels, right? I mean, you're just seeing more and more shifting. I think Ronzi Contreras right now is shifting to more sliders. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that develops because he's having a hell of a lot harder time striking people out. Um, but you may see a breakthrough, you know, in a month or two with him because he's just now his pitching profile has changed. Um, and, and he's got all kinds of like development things going on with him. So I don't know where he's going to net out, but it is interesting that his pitch mix has changed recently. Um, so what was it about Hurt? Where did you read about him that like kind of clued you in that this is a guy you wanted to pick up? So one of the first things that clues me in is, so I will literally... Um, there are MILB, there, I think the website uses MILB tracker, um, where it's just a really helpful for this day, show me the stats for all minor league players and it gives some helpful filters to it. Um, so I use that website and then for every, every night, just before bed, I'll spend like two minutes on my phone. I'll go to the website. I'll go to the picture, the full picture list and I'll just click strikeouts and I'll look, okay, who struck out the most guys today? Because, I mean, if you're not even using K minus walk, the best single indicator of if a guy is going to get to the majors is how many guys do they strike out. Yep. Um, and Hurt randomly that day pitched like four perfect innings with 10 Ks, and I had never heard the name, and he's age appropriate for the level. Um, I mean, 24 is a little older for double A, but it's not so old. Like I have Pat Monteverde that's 25 at double a but anyone that's below 27 i would say is still like a work in progress um for at the major league level 
Yeah, for pitchers, I think that's right. Um, I mean, there there are some recent studies that suggest that if you like want to really increase the likelihood of success, you do want them younger than that at Triple A and and at Double A correspondingly. But you know, this is all kind of like educated guesswork. I mean, you think twenty four at Double A ball is? We'll see if he gets promoted to Triple A, right, or whether he skips double, you know right to the majors. I mean, that's kind of the tell. I've got a guy, David Sandlin, who I picked up. Um, who's kind of a similar kind of breakout guy um, who is 22 and he's in high A ball. Um, and I want to see him get to double A this year. I, I was I was on David Sandlin. He had started to appear. And because I also, I'll run my own little, it's, it's nothing complicated, but it just kind of like has like a little spreadsheet that I have that'll, pull the best performers and it has like a little weight for age it's nothing scientific but it helps me like figure out who is really interesting at at a very base level yeah Uh, sandlin was on that almost immediately i think i thought about picking him up at one point i just didn't have enough information and i picked someone else up instead i think it might have been coleman crow yeah and you know what like Who's to say which one will end up being better? I don't know, but I, you know, I, I, I saw the K minus walk ratio, and by the time he got to I think his fourth start, I was like, all right, that's enough. I'll, I'll, I'll go get him, right? Um, because there are just too many sharks at ABL. Eventually, somebody else and see you, you were thinking about him. Josh said he was thinking about him. Like somebody would have picked him up, right? So I don't regret it for the one dollar fab that it cost me. So that's fine. Um, so listen, let's talk a little bit. Uh, this is part of my favorite parts of the show. It's like your crushes and fades, the guys you love and the guys maybe that you're, you know, less bullish on than consensus. I really would like to acquire Ethan Salas, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Please send me something. Uh, no, but I mean, yeah, Ethan Salas. I mean, uh, for guys that aren't necessarily top 100 right now, um, Robbie Snelling. I'm oh, sure. Really, I'm really in on. I have him in one league. I, I took him with my last pick because he had kind of appeared in um, some scouting reports. Is like, hey, this guy has an interesting mix. Um, and the Padres are really good um, at certain aspects of player development. I think they are one of the best at just purely identifying um, under the radar talent at an amateur level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Getting picked by the Padres is kind of a plus for me. And then since then, he's really kind of taken off. Um, yeah, I had him in ABL and traded him to Sam. Uh, and I will end up regretting that. Uh. It, it's always the same owners that have prospects that I'm interested in. It, it's you. Um, it's uh, the Red Sox. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. yeah, the Cardinal. Yeah, Jeff Cardinals always seems to have guys that i'm suddenly interested in um yeah it's it's always the same teams well all that means dave is we have to start talking more (laughs) you know you see somebody you like you gotta come to me i mean i'm sure the guys in your roster that i like um you know we may end up fleecing each other somehow in the same deal so you never know um so, all right, besides your love affair with Salas, which I understand, okay, and uh, we are going to broker a trade with you and Jeff to get Salas on your roster. We'll figure out how to do that. Um, let's talk a little bit about Ellie De, De La Cruz. And, hell yeah. Hell yeah. And they, so t- tell me tell me all you want to say about Ellie, because uh, I, I like him too, uh, but I'm interested yeah. to hear, like, you know, how big the love affair is now. How much Whitney Houston have you got going on here? 
So, like, I mean, name the list of guys that have, if you, okay, I think I heard this on Rates and Barrels, like, name the list of guys where if you just add up the value of their 20 to 80 scale across all five tools that match Ellie De La Cruz's total at the major league level. Um, Cause a lot of, a lot of the uh, skills are just flat values like arm and speed and uh, raw power are just flat values that you can kind of calculate. Yep. I mean, I think the list is, it's, it's single digits for sure. And it, it's probably less than five um, that just have the pure skill set that Ellie has. Um, I am so over people worried about the strikeout rate. Um, we have, so like, you know, Cardinals fans, we had a Rosarena, we had Adolis Garcia, um, two guys that also had a ton of power, a ton of speed. Um, and, but they just didn't have the hit tool figured out. Uh, Adolis really didn't have the hit tool figured out. And we had, you know, a log jam and we just couldn't give them the time. And when you give those guys time to really develop out their skill set, because, you know, you can't hardly teach speed at all. You can barely teach raw power. Um, no, you can help people access the power, but you can't teach it. Right. Yeah. And, and especially from like a hitter perspective, you can barely teach arm strength as well. Mm-hmm. So Ellie can play shortstop very well. Um, he has a cannon. He is as tooled up, if not more, than O'Neill Cruz, um, who is also, I mean, it, him, you know, being out for the season is like the huge, hugest bummer this year to me. Tell but, me about it, brother. I'm oh, do you, do you have Cruz? Yes. That sucks. <laughs> it does suck. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want to trade him to me, I'll, you know, I'll trade you something I'm, good. For I'm you. sure you would. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you would. I have, I have Cruz out right now and Jazz. So, God damn. Good times. <laughs> yeah. But, but yes, yeah. Let's not get derailed from Ellie. Yes. I interrupted you. No, no, all good. It's just when guys are so tooled up like that, and Jackson Churio is another guy who he doesn't have the screaming elite tools that Ellie and Cruz have. But like he's up there too. And when, when guys just, you can't teach talent. You can, you can teach almost everything else, but pure talent. And when guys have that freak athleticism, that, that phrase gets thrown around a bunch for Ellie. um, I'm, I'm way more in on it than I used to be. Yeah. Well, the other thing about Ellie at this point, uh, I totally agree with you about athleticism and that's, I target that in prospects, um, particularly at the, at younger levels, um, because you just never know which one of them are going to hit. But if you have a bunch of them, like you've got some of them, if you know what I'm saying? Um, Ellie now he's showing it at higher levels. Right. And so when you get that confirmation that they can play, they're not just freak athletes, but they can play and, and hold their own against higher level competition, that's pretty special. That's exciting, right? So, I mean, you know, he's on the precipice of the major leagues and he's a guy who may come up and struggle, right? When you start, when he starts his career. But if you just hold on to that kid, sky's the limit. Yeah, that's the thing. You just, you really have to be okay with not 
trusting the results over everything. Um, once they're in the majors, you have so much data that's coming in at you that you can then take that data and then just apply it to how are they, how do they compare to other players that have had this type of skill set? I mean, the number of players that have Ellie's skill set is small. Um, but how do they compare to guys that have had similar, like if he does come up any struggles, um, have they compared the guys that have had similar struggles and how long did it take them to turn it around? Did they ever turn it around? I think you'll find for Ellie, um, he's just, I don't know. To me, he's just too talented to not make it work. So, I think you're probably right. I mean, there there have been cases where like a guy was tooled up and just never made it. But like, if you're a betting man, you bet on him, right? Uh, it's a special special athlete, and it turns out he can play a little bit of baseball too, right? Um, so that that's that confirmation, you know, that I like to see at those when those freak athletes come in. You know, Joe Adele is like a, a kind of on the other spectrum. He's like kind of never been able to put it together at the major league level. Um, and it's kind of one dimensional, it turns out, um, at least thus far in, in his you know career. But Ellie's kind of flashing the ability to do a lot of different things. And that's kind of exciting. So tell me a little, some fades, some guys that, you know, maybe you're down on relative to consensus. Uh, yeah, I think I don't really have too many like specific fades. Um a profile I'm kind of I'm kind of out on is Gavin Stone. Um, Tell me why. It's you know changeups. I ju- I just don't really trust the changeup being your primary outpitch. This kind of also extends to Grayrod a little bit. Another mm-hmm. guy that has an elite changeup. Although I do think Grayrod has a path to being better in the future if he just stops throwing two of his pitches i think he he has like five pitches on baseball savant i bet and and i bet the orioles may try this soon because they do have good player development i bet they're going to tell grayson rodriguez stop throwing your curveball stop throwing your cutter uh, let's iron out these you know your four seam your change up your slider let's let's stick to those and let's get you through five innings and let's just see how that goes and mm-hmm. we can work on the other stuff in the lab. Um, I bet if he does that, he's going to, you know, put up crazy numbers because he's throwing, in my opinion, he's throwing bad pitches intentionally 20 to 30% of the time. So, right. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. A pitcher that is got that sort of repertoire in the minor leagues can get away with a lot of like mediocre pitches because of the quality of the competition he's going up against. But at the major league level, if you keep kind of throwing those junk pitches out there, the hitters are just too good, right? And they're just going to crush the, the the weak pitches. And so there is this learning curve of like actually trusting your good stuff. I think Spencer Strider specifically has really altered my view and probably the fantasy industry as a whole's view of what makes a good pitcher. And it's it's not necessarily a deep arsenal. If you have just two elite pitches and you can tunnel them perfectly off each other, which Spencer Strider is basically, if you go to his baseball savant, he has the perfect um, location heat map that you want to see for his pitches, which is why he's so good. Um, You know, some, I I talked about you with this uh, before we started, but I, I have floated Ellie before and I got close to a deal with um with the Blue Jays owner 
uh, yeah. with Strider. Yeah. Um, it, it never formulated. Um, I, I just kind of backed out. I, the price for me got a little too high. I mean, it was a, it was a fair deal. Strider's probably going to win the Cy Young. He um, could. Yeah. So and yeah, and Ellie has also kind of taken off. So I, I don't think either of us are really upset that that didn't come to fruition. But no, you bring up an interesting point with Strider because the guy, the parallel for me for Strider is Dwight Gooden in 1985, right? Who basically won the Cy Young with two pitches, his curveball and his fastball, and you know that was a time when pitchers went deeper in games, right? Strider. Doing that for just six innings, maybe seven. I mean, that's very sustainable, <laughs> you know, and you don't necessarily need that deep repertoire to get through that few innings. Gooden eventually needed to develop a change up to help him, you know, keep going deep in games. Right. Um, but it's a different era now. You know, Gooden also had all kinds of off the field problems, which screwed up his career. But, <laughs> you know. Um, but that, that 85 season, he basically was perfect, you know, uh, and ridiculous. I know, um, I, I, that was probably before your time, you know, you didn't get to see yeah, that. That was 10 <laughs> years before I was born, but yeah. that's okay. I, I was 15. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there you go. I have a signed ball by Gooden behind me. So, uh, oh, that's awesome. I mean, that, uh, that 85 season is like, it's still up there with best pitching season of all time. Right. Oh, it's not the best in the modern era. It's quite up there. You had John Tudor had a great year that year um, for the Cardinals. You had Gooden. Fernando Valenzuela had a great year. I mean, they're just, you know, Roger Clemens uh, kind of like had his first near breakout season. 86, he won the Cy Young. But, um, you know, Dave Steeb in Toronto was great that year. The list goes on. I mean, Jack Morris was good. I mean, it's a deep, deep pitching year for sure. Um, And that was the time when pitching was just dominant in baseball uh the 80s um i think only like the late 60s had like a higher dominance uh, ratio uh which of course you know because of bob gibson they they lowered the mound <laughs> um so uh well listen this has been really fun and interesting and uh i, I you know it's always i always learn a lot from the other owners and this is like fascinating to hear about your process and i really appreciate you sharing that um and, uh, you know, hearing about your uh, crushes and fades is always good. Um, and I wish you the best of luck with Ellie. Um, and uh, we will get a Ethan Salas trade broker for you. Right? we got to, like, figure that out. If you need me to mediate that, you let me know. I, I, I'm interested in, like, you know, bringing this to fruition so we get you and Jeff back on the show after the deal is done. And then uh, we can talk about how, how it was made to happen. Um, so thank you, Dave, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Hope you had a good time. And, um, you know, for the audience out there, remember to uh, – ABP, always be prospecting. All right. Good night, everybody.